Hi, I'm Emily Candela. I'm a design historian and an artist. And this show is inspired by what really fascinates me. The ways that science meets art and design. And over the last six weeks on this series, we've been bringing you stories from the long relationship between the arts and one particular science. X-ray crystallography, which is 100 years old this year. And it's a science that explores the invisible. Crystallographers shine X-rays through all kinds of materials, from quartz to proteins, in order to reveal the tiny structures of atoms in molecules and crystals. But this series isn't only about the submicroscopic world of atoms. It's also about how the humble science of X-ray crystallography has been quietly leaving its mark on art and design for decades. Welcome to Atomic Radio, a project of the Science Museum Art Program. This week's episode, our final episode, A Dark Art. Today, we're exploring the art and science of seeking out the structures of nature, even when they are nearly impossible to perceive. Artists and designers have been finding inspiration in scientific images for a long time. But today, many are also looking beyond images to scientists' methods for navigating the unknown. This is a very different way for science and the arts to meet. Especially, I think, when it comes to taking inspiration from the techniques of X-ray crystallography, the science at the heart of this entire series. And that's because crystallographers go after something that is invisible, the structures of atoms in just about everything. And in order to get there, they use an invisible tool. X-rays, which are beamed at a crystal and which bounce off the atoms inside. Today's episode is inspired by this very technique used by crystallographers. A technique of discerning structures in the darkness of the atomic world. Of shining a light on the invisible. This week, we feature a sculpture by the artist Conrad Shawcross that is partially composed of some of the crystallographer's most trusted, yet transient, materials. Light and shadow. We'll hear from Conrad about his work and the one scientist who inspired it. And later, we wrap up the entire Atomic Radio series by discerning some structures of our own with the journalist and creator of Super Collider, Chris Hatherall. One Saturday last year, I was at the Hayward Gallery in London seeing an art exhibition called Light Show. All of the artworks in this exhibition manipulated light in some way. And it made me kind of dizzy almost from the beginning. So I was actually a little bit nauseous by the time I turned the corner into this one room at the end that 
looked like it was moving. Inside, a pattern of squares arranged so that they looked like stacks of 3D cubes rotated around me. These were shadows of the metal mesh panels of a cage at the center of the room. Inside the cage, a mechanical arm holding a light drove itself in unpredictable arcs, casting the cage's grid pattern on the walls and ceiling as a shadow lattice. This was a sculpture by the artist Conrad Shawcross. It's called Slow Arc Inside a Cube. The title, Slow Arc Inside a Cube, really described very, very sort of directly, not very poetically, just exactly what's happening. There's a light bulb that moves from one corner of the cube to the other, and it slowly accelerates across the cage and then back, falls back across it. So it's got this sinusoidal speed profile, so it sort of almost decelerates towards the corner and then falls back across the space and decelerates towards the bottom corner and then again like a ball, almost like it's being affected by a sort of gravitational field from the center. That's Conrad Shawcross himself. I went to speak with him in his studio to find out more about this piece. Because when I saw it, I was struck by how much it reminded me of the techniques used by crystallographers. Their method of shining x-rays, a kind of light, through materials in order to reveal their fundamental structures. It was as though this sculpture, with its roving light, was generated by the dreaming unconscious of a crystallographer. Maybe one who had stayed up too late one night in the lab. And as it turns out, this artwork had been inspired in part by crystallography. In a really unique way. While I was sort of sort of ruminating over this piece, I came across this, this quotation. It's, um, it was in the sort of... Um, this display of uh, sort of chemical prototypes. There was all these amazing kind of models that scientists had done at sort of maybe three, and you've had this sense of them doing it at three in the morning on a kitchen table using spoons and chopsticks and just anything they had to hand. It was like that eureka moment where like they woke up and thought, oh my God, that's how I, this is what it looks like, this thing that I'll never see, I'm going to make it. Anyway, there was this beautiful quote and it was kind of tucked away, but it was this quote from Dorothy. The Dorothy that Conrad is talking about is the X-ray crystallographer Dorothy Hodgkin, who revealed the atomic structures of substances like insulin and penicillin. She was describing the process of crystallography, and she described that process as trying to work out the structure of a tree, but by only seeing its shadow. So it was a beautiful Plato's cave kind of analogy, and, but just a lovely sort of humble as well. It was about the sort of limits of science, the limits of perception, and how you're never really going to be able to describe that tree. So I was sort of really inspired by that, and it sort of galvanized me to make the piece. So, so I took a cube, and uh, it was about kind of, if you, if you were standing in this room and you only saw the walls, whether you'd be able to get back to the original object in the middle. And so you've got these fleeting, moving shadows that sway and sort of drift across the room and extend, and the, the art, it becomes like a lens for the room. So it's all sort of shadows of the real, really, like, um, she was hinting at and what Plato originally hinted at. Artists and designers have been inspired in the past by crystallographers' detailed drawings and models of the structures of atoms in materials. Like those wallpaper patterns from the 50s that we featured two weeks ago. But Conrad Shawcross's sculpture is different. In this case, it wasn't necessarily the images. 
It was the technique used by scientists that stimulated the artist's imagination. A technique of reading shadows for information about the detailed patterns making up the material world. I just remember being very interested by the fact that she said that it was just these reams of reading about these reams of uh, dots on these sort of grid charts and and then and the building up of this model, this three-dimensional model from these black and white dots on a sort of grid. And from that, extrapolating and creating this beautiful, rich protein cloud, this model of insulin that she managed to achieve. Dorothy Hodgkin worked out the complex structure of insulin over a period of three decades, beginning in the early 1930s. In order to visualize the structures of atoms and molecules, crystallographers shine x-rays through tiny crystals of matter and study the shadows revealed on the other side. These shadows, the traces of diffracted x-rays, come in the form of a cryptic photograph showing a pattern of dots and smudges. Scientists work backwards from these patterns to reveal the structures of atoms in a molecule that created them. In the past, these patterns sometimes took years to decode, with crystallographers going back and forth between their X-ray photograph and the visualization of a molecule through building intricate models made of balls and sticks, string, rubber tubes, and children's toys. Those models Conrad mentioned that look like a 3 a.m. kitchen table epiphany. And I suppose it was just that stumbling in the dark, that seeing around the corner, that inferral through ingenious sort of means. I sort of came up with a term which I sort of used to describe a lot of my work, which I call blind aesthetics. So it's this idea of um, uh, aestheticizing the things that will never be seen. So it's this sort of, uh, we are essentially blind to these things that are so small that we are beyond the, the, the wavelength of light and, uh, and we, we will never see them, nor, will they, no, nor are they seeable in the conventional sense of eyesight. But we do see them in other ways and we sense them and we understand them through these ingenious methods. I'm always thinking about how science and culture intersect and intertwine with one another. And over the past six weeks doing this show, I've been wondering what exactly it is that has drawn designers and artists to this particular science. And maybe it's this, this ingenious grasping in the dark for something that can barely be grasped. Essentially, the, the role of the artist and the role of the scientist are quite similar in that they, we both have to use quite a lot of imagination to represent these things that are never will never be seen, but we represent them within our visual spectrum to appreciate and understand, but they are essentially imaginative leaps, and they're not, they don't really look like that. They don't, it's not appropriate to say they look like anything, but we make visual representations of things that are invisible. So for this, our final episode of Atomic Radio, I decided that instead of concluding and wrapping up our exploration of X-ray crystallography and the arts, we'd instead open things up a bit. In the style of crystallographers' never-ending explorations of the atomic structures of our material world, 
we are going to discern some structures of our own. The best person to do this for us is my next guest, the journalist Chris Hatherell. In 2006, Chris set up Super Collider, an agency devoted to the exploration of science from a pop cultural perspective through projects, events, publications, and an ever-growing collection of products. All of this can be found on the website super-collider.com. Chris is an expert when it comes to curating and illuminating the intersections of science and culture. I first came to Super Collider from a journalistic angle, basically uncovering stories and um, working at pop culture magazines, uh, things like Sleaze Nation, Vice, covering music, fashion, design, art, um, but oddly not science. So I found myself kind of being drawn back towards a childhood fascination with all things uh, scientific. Instead of going home in the evenings and read music magazines, I would go home and read science magazines. Uh, and the more I sort of started talking about this with people, the more I realized I wasn't alone. There were loads of people in the kind of creative uh, community um, who were just fascinated by science, but maybe didn't have the, you know, the background. Chris will be shining a light on his five favorite structures from science for us today. And some of them might surprise you. Well, should we start off with your first structure? Absolutely, yeah. It's been um, incredibly hard narrowing <laughs> it down to five or six, but, um, but yeah, here it goes. Five. Um, so I guess for any kid growing up in a cold place, as we both did, uh, Washington, D.C. in your case, and Canada in mine, um, the first kind of crystal I guess any kid comes across uh, when you're little is snowflakes. Um, you know, you look at your, your woolen jacket or mittens one day and you've got these incredible, exquisite little things on your sleeve and you sort of wonder what they are. Like other crystals, um, snowflake shape reflects um, the internal order of what's happening inside. Uh, and of course, snowflakes are famously each one being different. Turns out it's kind of true and kind of false. Uh, really? Yeah. So, so there are there snowflakes that are exactly the same? Apparently, yeah. But the chances are you probably won't ever see them like on your sleeve on the same day because there's the chances, right. you know, that. But basically, I mean, there's only a sort of finite number of sort of shapes. So, you know, they will at some point in history over eons and billions of years, there will be two that are kind of exactly the same especially on the surface. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's quite interesting. That changes everything I thought I knew. There you go. I mean, a researcher in the U.S. found two identical ones, and I guess she was pretty happy about that. I mean, more recently, they've been doing um, experiments in space on the Japanese Kubo Laboratory, and the first time they made it uh, in space was actually on the Challenger, a space shuttle Challenger in the 80s. And in the way that uh, they melt, we can actually learn a lot about the atmosphere. I think one of the Japanese researchers in the 30s began studying them, and uh, he says that, you basically you can read uh, meteorological information, which is like written on the snow crystal. Um, so by looking at the snowflake, you can tell you know what part of the atmosphere it formed in, what the weather's doing, and very poetically he called them a letter from the sky. Um, so yeah, I just think you know as a structure, it's kind of you know infinitely you know sort of fascinating and simple, but then complex. Four. So from the very ancient to the, you know, very brand new, um, graphene, the 
Miracle Wonder Substance, which was actually only sort of isolated in the laboratory in uh, 2004. Can you describe what graphene is? Yeah, so graphene was um, sort of theorized long before it happened. Um, and it's basically uh, the building block um, for lots of other sort of carbon-based materials. Um, it's uh, pure carbon in the form of a very thin, transparent sheet, one atom thick. So it's essentially 2D. Um, and this had been theorized and, you know, it was possible for quite a while and people were experimenting with different ways um, of isolating it and famously um, winning them the Nobel Prize. A couple of researchers in Manchester actually managed to do it using scotch tape, just sticking it onto graphite and pulling away layers um, and basically getting this incredibly thin substance for the first time, uh, which, yeah, earned them the Nobel Prize and has subsequently led to this explosion of sort of interest and... Um, promises to change the world in all sorts of different <laughs> ways. Um, I guess probably the most kind of commercial and the most, you know, kind of um, exciting in our modern world for most people is the kind of digital kind of side of things where you can create sort of flexible screens and computers, uh, much faster um, transistors, things like that. But it's got a whole wealth of other um, uses as well, which kind of for me are much more interesting, some environmental things that could really make a difference and stuff. Oh, like what? So I had a look recently, kind of because it seems with graphene, every week there's a new, you know, a new discovery or a new announcement. You could run a whole graphene website quite easily <laughs> and probably get really good advertising revenue from it. Because, um, yeah, just this week, uh, or in the past couple of weeks, anyhow, researchers at Berkeley have created the first all 2D transistor. So this is, you know, a way of transmitting information incredibly quickly. Uh, at a single, you know, a single scale. It's so thin that it's essentially 2D. It's not even really a 3D object. If you read all the hype and you believe all the hype, it's going to be hard to predict exactly how much uh, graphene will change the world, uh, particularly computing. Um, there's also other, you know, really exciting stuff like using it in batteries to make batteries which charge uh, very, very quickly and hold their charge, which, of course, is, you know, one of the big challenges from everything from electric cars to wind turbines and how you, you know, store and transmit energy. Um, and even just things like uh, putting it on the uh, underside of ships' hulls and increasing the, or decreasing the drag in the water and thus increasing their efficiency. So it really is this kind of, yeah, incredible Superman-type substance. Our third structure is something that we come across every day. It's something we walk on. Uh, it's something that rises in the, the east and sets in the west. Uh, and it's quite simple. It's just the sphere. Um, it's quite obvious, but the kind of the way planets and stars um, gravitationally just collapse into these perfect circles is something that I can't I find quite fascinating and quite sort of perfect, the fact that you've got these, you know, these spheres in nature, um, obviously just caused by uh, gravitational attraction. We never really think that, you know, we're not living on a big triangle or a, a pyramid <laughs> or some kind of hexagonal structure. It's literally like just, you know, the whole galaxy, the whole universe is just full of circles, you know, full of all these spheres kind of thing. Um, I think when it struck me particularly, it was a couple of years ago, we went to see the transit of Venus um, in Sweden. We ran a field trip out there. Um, to go have a look, and we're up among these, um, you know, pine forests in the far north of Sweden. It had been cloudy all night. Uh, we went out in the morning to to see if the clouds would clear and let us see this incredible um, astronomical occurrence, which is when Venus passes in front of the sun, and it only happens twice every 120 years or so. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's a twice-in-a-lifetime event, and this was the last time to see it. And uh, the clouds kind of broke, and we saw the sun in this perfect kind of circle, uh, and on the face of it, another tiny circle was sphere. 
which was Venus passing in front. And it was just you know incredible seeing these two perfect, perfect things in nature, which just looked you know, kind of artificial. If you ever get the chance even just to look at the sun through a safe pair of, um, you know, modified binoculars or eclipse glasses, uh, it really is incredible to see just our nearest star is just really this amazing ball. Um, and yeah, it's a simple but I like to think beautiful structure. Two. Uh, this is uh, the eye as a structure. Um, and science and kind of pop science writing is kind of fascinated by the eye. It's really like a sort of um, a lightning rod for debate and interest and sort of talking about evolution and the way, you know, the way creatures have evolved. Key kind of arguments for intelligent design, the fact that, you know, there had to be a god or some kind of creator because how could you make eyes? They're so complicated. And how would that ever evolve? It just seems completely crazy and blah, blah, blah. So this was like the sort of, you know, the argument. And science has basically stepped up. Well, they didn't have to step up. They just basically answered it through all sorts of uh, amazing evidence, which is still being gathered. It's still very ongoing. It's still, you know, a, lo- a little bit mysterious. And um, I hadn't really thought of this before, but uh, I was reading. It's actually quite hard to study the evolution of the eye because it's such soft tissue. Uh, it's the first thing to go when something dies, you know, whether it just decomposes or a right. bunch of birds come and peck out your eyes. It's, <laughs> they, don't, they don't get left behind, do they? So there's no fossil record of eyes. As far as I know, there's some, you know, there's some evidence, but it's just compared to bones, it's much, you know, much rarer and much kind of harder to kind of find examples of how it sort of um, how it sort of evolved. Are there any life forms that have eyes that that do leave some sort of record that that we can study? There is actually, yeah, one of the most um, famous and kind of favorite uh, childhood fossils, uh, which everyone kind of knows and loves, uh, the famous trilobite. I once found one when I was little and took it to the museum, uh, wrapped up with like a really important note saying like, for the scientists. Really? Like, as Where did it, you find it? Just on the on the lakeshore in uh, Toronto. And I thought it was like this groundbreaking discovery. And in fact, you know, it's just some, you know, run of the mill trilobite. But when you're six, it's, you know, pretty, That's cool. pretty groundbreaking stuff. Really. Yeah. Um, and yeah, trilobites have these unique uh, compound eyes that were actually made from uh, clear calcite crystals. So they actually had sort of like hardened crystal eyes. Um, some of them just had a single crystal. Um, others had, you know, uh, thousands of lenses in one eye. And that's the kind of stuff that has been sort of preserved in the fossil records. So we know very well about these crazy hard trilobite eyes. But there is um, quite a fascinating story of, you know, how did eyes first kind of evolve? Uh, and this is about sort of 600 uh, million years ago, in the uh, about the same time as the Cambrian explosion, this giant you know explosion of different life forms and stuff. Um, and the first eyes were called eye spots. They were just simple uh, patches of photoreceptor protein in unicellular animals. Uh, they could sense kind of ambient brightness. They could distinguish between lightness and dark, but not really the direction of the light source. Uh, they then evolved to sort of have small pits that would allow kind of you know a little bit of directionality. And it's gradually evolved more and more into deeper pits and the holes began to close. And you can kind of see this whole, you can imagine this whole process kind of slowly happening. And eventually it sort of formed a pinhole camera and then things just went on from there and just kind of evolved into all the different sorts of eyes we have now from, you know, familiar human and kind of mammal eyes to compound eyes and those incredible microscope shots you see of, you know, flies and things like that. Um, So, yeah, again, it's, you know, it's not a simple structure, but it is, you know, just this incredible... Uh, structure that kind of tells the story of life on Earth. One. 
And our final structure uh, is perhaps the most mysterious of all. And this is uh, a weird little thing that I saw in the um, first found in the jungles of Peru. Um, there's an incredible eco lodge deep within one of the um, one of the parks there. Uh, it's a couple of hours in a boat, and you sort of you go up and you stay at this amazing place where there's um, a watering hole where lots of lots of birds come to drink and um, you know replenish themselves. Um, and while staying there, some researchers, um, actually a chemist, uh, found on the underside of a blue tarp this crazy little structure. Um, it's basically imagine like a tiny little circular fence about two centimeters wide, um, complete with like little fence posts. It's got like a sort of like little. Um, uh, little railings, I guess, made of what only can be described as like spider webby kind of material. So really, really tiny, uh, really intricate. And that would be strange enough. But then in the middle of it, there's this little cone with like a sort of pole sticking out the top, like a little tower. And coming down from the tower are these little sort of like may, mayflower, maypole type uh, things, like little kind of little strands. Um, and this kind of, you know, sort of hit the internet in a big in a big way. Uh, you know, it was all over Wired and this crazy, mysterious structure. And uh, Wired actually called a whole bunch of different people. They called, like, people study, like, mushrooms and fungi, uh, spider, um, insects, you know, botanists, the whole, you know, the whole range of different people. And nobody still has like, any idea, as far as I can tell, what this kind of thing is. The last kind of news was that they were sort of narrowing down the search. Um, and one of the proposals which sort of seems to make sense to me is, like, it's a kind of moth, um, a moth egg kind of protection scheme. So basically the moth makes this egg in the middle, uh, creates a little fence around it and then builds this tower that then climbs and then flies away. So it kind of it's left with this kind of self-sufficient little uh, nesting thing, uh, which apparently moths have done that. Other moths have built fences around eggs. Really? Um, yeah. So it's just this crazy thing. I, just, I love that it just shows that, you know, um, the great thing about nature, especially in science, is just there's always new discoveries to be made. And, you know, even though we think we know the world really well, there's still thousands of species left to be found. And, you know, you might just lift up a tarp one day when you're camping and find something that could change the world. You just heard the journalist and founder of Super Collider, Chris Hatherall, who shared his five favorite structures from science with us. In the first episode of Atomic Radio, I mentioned my parents, who are scientists, and their love of labeling things around the house with chemical diagrams. So it was only fair that at least one of them should appear on the show. So thanks to my mother for being the voice of the numbers in our countdown. Also, thanks to my guests this week, Conrad Shawcross and Chris Hatherall. And that is it for Atomic Radio. Find all our previous episodes from Atomic Fiction, featuring the designer Daisy Ginsberg and work by the artist Tacita Dean, through last week's show that featured a radio play inside a molecule from a sperm whale, on our website, atomicradio.org, and on the Science Museum Media Space SoundCloud page. My dream of making a radio show about the love affair between the little-known science of crystallography and culture has only become a reality because of the work and talent of the spectacular Atomic Radio team. The show's been co-produced by Chris Dixon. Every writer should have the 
How would Chris say this, voice in their brain, like I do now? Our sound designers are Emmett Glynn and Sam Conran. They have done much more than your everyday radio sound design. That atomic music you've been hearing over the last six weeks comes to you not from the crystalline spheres of the cosmos, but from the mind of sound designer and musician Emmett Glynn. And whenever you heard something like this... which is the sound of X-ray crystallography data. That was the handiwork of Atomic Radio's Sam Conran. He also created the aural architecture that featured in our last episode, a magnified molecule from a whale that is only perceivable through sound, or as it is now known, a data samification. Check out more of his work at samconran.com. Atomic Radio has been supported by the Science Museum Art Program and is part of the International Year of Crystallography. Find out about everything else happening in celebration of the International Year at iycr.org. This series is part of my PhD across the Royal College of Art and the Science Museum which is funded by an Arts and Humanities Research Council Collaborative Doctoral Award. Thanks, as always, to my fabulous PhD supervisors, Sarah Teasley and Peter Morris. And special thanks to Hannah Redler. It might be the last show in the Atomic Radio series, but this doesn't have to be goodbye forever. To keep up with what we're doing next, find us on Twitter at Radio underscore Atomic. And you can find me on Twitter at Lady Meanlice. That is my Twitter handle, and I'm not changing it. Visit us at atomicradio.org with your comments and feedback, and it's been fun speaking to you. Goodbye.